We're using as a text scripture, a beginning point, Zechariah chapter 10 and verse 1, which says, Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, so the Lord shall make bright clouds. Now, the margin of my Bible and yours may say as well, lightnings. Other translations read that way. Uh, the, the Hebrew word that's translated bright clouds is translated lightnings in other places. The few other places that it's uh, used in the, in the Old Testament. So ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, so the Lord shall make bright clouds or lightnings and give them showers of rain to everyone grass in the field. Now let me give you the interpretation of what all that means without taking a lot of time to, to go over things that we've discussed before. It's simply saying this. Ask for the move of God in the last days. And God will make his power and his presence manifest unto you to bring in the precious fruit of the earth. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about the manifestation of the Holy Ghost. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us what these manifestations of the Spirit of the Holy Ghost are. You can turn over there if you like. We'll go through the list one, one more time real quickly. And then we'll talk a little bit further about uh, one or two of them today. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12... Beginning in verse 7, he said, but the manifestation of the Spirit. Well, we know what he's talking about then, don't we? The appearing. That's what manifestation means. It means shining forth or appearing. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit withal. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom. He gives us a list of nine different ways that the Holy Ghost manifests himself. In other words, the lightnings that Zechariah was talking about, Zechariah chapter 10 and verse 1, are identified as nine different things or nine different ways that the Holy Ghost will manifest himself. And any way that the Holy Ghost manifests himself has got to be a part of one of these, uh, has got to be a part of this list of nine in some way or another, or maybe a combination of several of them. Many of these work together. So he says, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit withal. For to one, not everybody, but for to one, is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith, or the Amplified says special faith, we know it would have to be special faith because the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So you can develop faith in God's word just by growing in the knowledge of what it says. So here it's talking about a special manifestation of faith. So that's why the Amplified, rightly so in my opinion, uh, identifies it as special faith. Faith that's given by the Holy Spirit and not just c- that comes through the knowledge of the word. To another faith or special faith by the same spirit. To another, the gifts of healings. Now, in the original Greek, both gifts and healings are in the plural. I don't know why the translators didn't translate it that way all the time. They did on occasion, but not every time. But it should be. To another, the gifts of healings, both in the plural, by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, diverse kinds of tongues. Now, the word diverse is in italics, which means the translators added it. But you could understand that kinds of tongues would be different kinds of tongues. So that doesn't hurt us anything to, to leave that in there. So to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues, but all these worketh. So at the time that Paul wrote, all these things were in operation, weren't they? Now some people will say, yeah, but it's not that way anymore. Says who? Show me anything in the Bible where God ever changes. Both Either God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit ever changes. But all these worketh. As a matter of fact, Paul, or uh, Jesus, excuse me, in writing about the Holy Ghost, said he would abide with you forever. He didn't say he'd abide with you for a little while. And all these things are are a result of the Holy Spirit abiding with the church, aren't they? But all these worketh. That means they're still supposed to be in operation today. 
They never quit. But all these worketh that one and selfsame spirit dividing to every man severally as he wills. Now, the word severally can mean a couple of things. It can mean, actually, it has two meanings. You decide which one you think is appropriate. It means severally as in more than one. So it could be saying that the Holy Ghost will manifest himself in more than one way through individuals. Or it also means specifically, which could mean that the Holy Ghost will specifically manifest himself through everyone in at least one of these ways. I like both definitions, to be honest with you. I think both apply. But all these work at the one and selfsame spirit, dividing to every man severally as he wills. Now, we've talked about this list in uh, in a little bit of detail. And, of course, you you realize we could talk about this forever, I mean, until Jesus comes back and not exhaust the subject. There's there's never an end to the things that you could talk about here. And we can't talk about them forever because there are other things that we need to cover in Scripture, too. But we've identified certain certain uh, important points or issues of uh, about this list of nine. And that is you can divide them very easily into three different groups. Three of these manifestations of the Spirit say something. Diverse kinds of tongues, interpretation of tongues, and prophecy are all vocal gifts. They speak by the inspiration of the Spirit something that God's trying to deliver to the people, whether in a known or an unknown tongue. Prophecy is in a known, is in a known tongue. Diverse kinds of tongues is in an unknown tongue. Now, when I say unknown tongue, I'm talking about unknown to the speaker. may not be unknown to the hearer. Another group, another set of three, reveal something. The word of wisdom, the word of knowledge and discerning of spirits enables you to see something that is known by God, but not known by us unless the Holy Spirit reveals it. The word of wisdom reveals future plans, God's plan and purpose for the future. The word of knowledge deals with or reveals past and or present tense events. And discerning of spirits enables you to see into the spirit realm by the Holy Ghost. Well, you can't see into the spirit realm on your own, can you? I know some people think they can. But I'm talking about the real thing. Now, that only comes by the Holy Ghost. You remember in the, remember in the Old Testament where uh, uh, Elisha was surrounded by the enemy king, the king of Syria and his armies. And his servant, Gehazi, said, Master, what are we going to do? And he says, don't worry about it, Gehazi. There's more with us than there are with them. Well, he must have had some kind of information that Gehazi didn't have because you can see Gehazi doing the math. He sees the hillside surrounded with Syrian, the Syrian army. He's counting one and two with him and, Gehazi, him and Elisha. And then Elisha said, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And when he did, it said he saw the chariots of God on fire, the horses of fire, the angels, the angel army of God that greatly outnumbered the Syrian army. Now, did Elisha see that? Don't know, but he knew they were there. Well, how was, Elisha, how was Gehazi able to see that? The Holy Spirit enabled him to because of what Elisha asked. So that's discerning of spirits. Notice it's not discerning of devils. Some people, all they ever see is devils. They'll see devils in you. They'll see devils behind every rock. They'll see devils in every church that doesn't do what they think they ought to do. It's not discerning of devils. It's discerning of spirits. The Bible talks more about seeing God's side of the spirit realm in the Bible than it ever does about seeing the devil. That brings us to the third group, and that's the power gifts or manifestation of the spirit. Three of these perform or do something, the working of miracles, the gift of faith or special faith, 
And um, there's another one. Which one did I leave out? Working of miracles, special faith, and gifts of healings. Thank you very much. I knew it was in there. Now, we've talked a little bit and started talking a little bit about the power gifts. Turn back to uh, to Exodus chapter 3. The power gifts are um, sometimes hard to distinguish because they all result in the same thing, and that is a miraculous result. And so sometimes it's hard to tell whether somebody worked a miracle or special faith caused them to believe for a miracle. Gifts of healings are easier to identify because those are always healing miracles. But I want you to see a few things about this. We talked about uh, primarily the gift of faith, I think, last uh, Sunday morning. I want to talk a little bit more about the working of miracles and maybe the connection between the two, gift of faith or special faith, and working of miracles. Chapter 3 of Exodus is when uh, God appears to Moses in the burning bush. And he says some things to him. He says um, in verse 10, he says, Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people the children of Israel out of Egypt. And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel? And he said, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. So he's talking about signs, isn't he? He's saying, Moses, I want you to have a sign. And then Moses asked him, he says, Who will I say sent me? In verse 14, God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shall you say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. And then he talks to him about the promised land. I'm going to bring you into a good land and a promised land. Now turn with me to chapter 4. Let's skip through this. I don't want to take a lot of time to deal with the details. But I do want you to see something that's very important. I believe it's important anyway. Chapter 4, Moses answered and said, But behold, they'll not believe me. Father, all these things you're saying, God, all these things you're saying is good, and I I appreciate it, and, and, and I accept it, but other people aren't going to believe me. They will not believe me nor hearken unto my word, for they will say, The Lord has not appeared unto thee. Now, folks, this is a key phrase. Because it's easy to say, God told me. And a lot of the things that people say God told them never came to pass. Never came to fruition, which, as far as I'm concerned, means God didn't tell them. There's only one of two options here. If either God said something and you were terribly unfaithful and you were the hindrance for it coming to pass, or he didn't say it. Well, who wants to admit to being unfaithful? Yeah, God told me, but I was unfaithful. You don't see too many people claiming that God told them stuff, claiming that, do you? So then what's the other option? God didn't say it. Now, in the Old Testament, it's real easy to identify if God really said something or not. Because under the Old Testament, if somebody claimed to be a prophet and said, God told me this and it didn't come to pass, they killed them. I like the New Testament better. So you could miss it for a while, but not for long. But Moses is concerned. He's he's concerned about how will people know that you really appeared to me? How will people know that you really sent me? And God doesn't shy away. He doesn't say, well, you you need to just take these things on faith. The people that are going to believe are going to believe just and forget about the rest of them. Notice what God said. The Lord said unto him, what is that in thine hand? And he said, a rod. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. God's not just saying any old thing will do whatever you're carrying. Moses was a shepherd. 
And this rod, there were two things, two primary weapons or two primary tools that a shepherd used. One was the great big long staff that had the hook on the end. Everybody thinks about that in connection with a shepherd. And that was necessary to, to reach out and, and pull sheep back when they got, you know, in dangerous territory or stuff like that. That's not what he said. That's called a staff. You remember in Psalm 23, he said, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Well, both are tools of the shepherd. What he said was in his hand was not the staff, but the rod. Now, the rod was about an 18 to 24 inch stick that he used as a weapon. The staff wasn't really very much, uh, wasn't very useful as a weapon, but the rod was. The rod would be something that, for example, if he saw one of the sheep getting close to where a snake was, he would throw that in the direction of the snake to, sh- to scare it away. Same thing with a wild animal or something like that that was uh, uh, a threat to the sheep. The rod was the weapon. It was used to protect the sheep, and it also had a second use, and that was a shepherd had to take very special care that uh, that sheep didn't get uh, uh, infected or, or parasites or stuff like that. And so he would take the rod and run it over the wool at the same time that he would run his hand. So the, the rod was used not only for protection and or judgment, it was also used as a comforting device. So the, the sheep would understand that. The sheep weren't scared of the, of the stick because the little stick called the rod was never used against them. But it was used as judgment against other things that would harm them or came to harm them. And so when he asked Moses, what's in your hand? Moses says a rod. God uses that as the sign and the symbol for his power. That's the same thing that's true for today. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 11, it says that Jesus was the rod that came from the root of Jesse. What does it mean? That means the Old Testament rod that Moses used as a sign of God's miracle working power was a type of the name of Jesus that we have today. You've got a rod that's greater than what Moses threw around. But Moses used that rod in almost every one of the, the plagues that came against Israel or came against uh, Egypt. Excuse me. He smote the, the Nile River and it turned to blood. He took that rod each time. He, uh, uh, on one occasion, he would stretch the rod out to heaven. He stretched the rod out to heaven and hail mingled with fire came down. Another time he stretched that rod out toward heaven and darkness came upon the land. Another time he took that rod and he struck the ground, struck the dirt, and it turned into lice. Another time he stretched out that rod toward the east and locusts came and filled the, the, the land. And all of these things were as a result of what Moses said, here's what's going to happen. But it was the rod that he used to work the miracle that he had pre- predicted by the, by the word of the Lord. So notice it's the, it's the manifestation of working of miracles, not the gift of miracles. Wouldn't it be great if God gave us the gift of miracles? If God gave you the gift of miracles, that would mean you could, you could work a miracle anytime you wanted to work one. Well, who does God share his power with like that? Even Jesus said that wasn't the way that it worked with him. Jesus said, I do the things that my father tells me to do, and he's the one in me that's doing the works. Jesus didn't claim to have miracle working power in and of himself. Now, that's where most of the church, in my opinion, misses it. They think that Jesus did miracles because he was the son of God. And he said that he didn't. The reason that we know that is because we come upon situations where Jesus could not do miracles. Mark chapter 6 tells us about Jesus in his own, own hometown of Nazareth. And it says in verse 5, and he could there do no mighty work. Well, a mighty work would be a miracle, wouldn't it? 
So it's telling us very specifically, in Nazareth, he couldn't do any miracles. Well, wasn't he the son of God in Nazareth? Or did he have to quit being the son of God when he entered into the city limits? He was just as much the son of God in Nazareth as he was in Capernaum. And he even said to the people in Nazareth, I know what you're thinking. The same miracles that I did in Capernaum, the same mighty works I did in Capernaum do here too. But the Bible says he couldn't. doesn't say he wouldn't. It says he couldn't. Why couldn't he? Well, verse 6 of Mark chapter 6 tells us. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Well, if their unbelief was the thing that hindered him from doing miracles, then it didn't have anything to do with him being the son of God then. So what did he do to counteract or, 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 or change the unbelief of the people? It says he went around about their cities and villages teaching. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. But this rod in Moses' hand was the sign. It was the symbol. It was the token of miracles. And as long as Moses has got that rod in his hand, all he needs is the word of the Lord. He knows this is the key. This little stick that I used for years to chase off snakes and, and lions and other wild animals and stuff like that that would harm the sheep. Now this is a symbol. It's a sign. It's a token of the miracle working power of God. Now, what is working of miracles for? Turn with me over to, uh, to um, Exodus chapter 9. Let me show you something that, uh, that Moses is, is uh, commanded to tell Pharaoh. Let's start in verse 13. And the Lord said unto Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart and upon thine servants and upon thy people that thou mayest know. What's the, what's the purpose for Moses doing these miracles that resulted in the ten plagues? That thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. So why is Moses doing miracles at the, at the hand of God? Why is Moses instructed to do miracles which result in the plagues against Egypt? Why is he doing these miracles? So that God could prove that he's God. Do you see that? He goes even further. Verse 15, for now I will stretch out my hand that I may strike thee and thy people with pestilence and thou shalt be cut off from all the earth. And in very deed for this cause... Speaking to Pharaoh, for this cause I have raised thee up. Here's the reason why you're Pharaoh, in other words. I'm sure Pharaoh thought it was because he was the guy. He was one of the gods of Egypt. Pharaohs were considered to be gods. I'm sure Pharaoh thought it was because of who my daddy was. But he says, here's the reason why you're Pharaoh. For to show in you my power and that my name may be declared through all the earth. Now, how did that occur? By Pharaoh hardening his heart over and over and over again and God finally destroying him because of his rebellion against the things that, that were, the, the miracles that were demonstrated in front of him. Why are you Pharaoh? So that I can prove that I'm God. So what are working of miracles for? What is working of miracles all about? It's God showing that he's God. Now, turn with me over to 1 Kings chapter, I think it's chapter 18, because I want you to see something about this. Here's the story of Elijah 
Elijah is the prophet of the, uh, in the land of Israel at a certain point in time in Israel's history. And uh, the, the, um, the king of Israel is named Ahab. And he is, if not the most wicked, certainly one of the top three. I mean, Ahab is, is known throughout Israel's history as the greatest idolater and the one that set up the, the most temples to idol worship and all this kind of stuff. I mean, he was just totally against God and, uh, and did his own thing serve the devil and so he had these prophets of Baal Baal was the the primary idol of the day and Elijah came to the people verse 21 Elijah came unto all the people and said how long halt you between two opinions if the Lord be God follow him but if Baal then follow him and the people answered him not a word then Elijah said unto the people I even I only remain a prophet of the Lord but Baal's prophets are of 450 men Let them therefore give us two bullocks and let them choose one bullock for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on wood and put no fire under and I will dress the other bullock and lay it on wood and put no fire under. And call ye on the name of your gods and I'll call on the name of the Lord. And the God that answers by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. So you see the picture. Elijah says, well, let's just have a contest. You folks serve Baal. You've got 450 prophets that, that basically say whatever Jezebel, the king's wife, the queen of Israel, tells you to say so that she can control you. There's 450 prophets of Baal. I'm the only prophet of God that's left. So let's have a contest. Let's see which God answers by fire. Now, folks, stop and think about that for a minute. We read these stories and we know the end of the story. And so we think, yeah, God answered by fire. But, folks, fire fell from heaven. Did you hear what I said? Fire fell from heaven. Now, I've seen rain fall from heaven, but I've never seen fire fall from heaven. Have you? Fire fell from heaven. That's not a normal occurrence. I mean, there is a water cycle where water comes to the earth and water evaporates and clouds form and then water comes to the earth. There is no fire cycle. Fire comes to the earth, burns stuff up, and then fire goes up, and then fire comes down. There is no fire cycle. Fire fell from heaven. Where did it come from? We know that water vapor clouds are basically water vapor. So we know where water comes from when it rains. Where does fire come from when it falls from heaven? I want you to get the magnitude of the miracle. So you know the story. We won't take time to read the whole thing. We'll summarize it real quickly. They go first. Prophets of Baal go first. And so they they spend all half the day or most all the day jumping up and down, screaming, cutting themselves, crying out, doing all kinds of weird stuff. The devil will make you stupid. (laughs) Serving the devil is not a smart thing to do. And so they do all this kind of stuff. And Elijah mocks them. He's not sitting by tolerant of their religion. I know it's... Politically correct to be tolerant of everything. But Elijah is making fun of him. He says, well, maybe you need to call louder. Maybe you're God's hard of hearing. He even said, he winds up saying some, some, uh, what we would think of as crude things. He says, maybe he's out to lunch. Finally, he says, maybe he's on the toilet and can't hear you. I mean, Elijah's having a good time with this, which tells me that he knew something ahead of time. I mean, Elijah doesn't just come up with an idea. Hey, let's see which God answers by fire. How does he know God's going to answer by fire? 
He's got to have the word of the Lord in some manner, doesn't he? So finally, at the end of the day, he says, all right, forget it. You guys have had enough time. My turn. He rebuilds the altar that they've been jumping up and down on and tearing down and all this kind of stuff, doing their crazy things. He rebuilds the altar. He gets the wood stacked. He puts everything in the in the right manner. And then he says, and this is in the middle of a three-year drought, he says, bring me four barrels of water. And he put these four barrels of water on. Uh, well, actually, I guess first he said dig a trench around the um, around the altar. And then he took the four barrels of water that they brought. And now water is the most precious commodity there is in that part of the world at that point in time. He took those four barrels of water, drinking water, and he poured over the sacrifice. He soaked the wood. He soaked the the, uh, the sacrifice. There was water left over in the trench. And he said, now do that two more times. Twelve barrels of water. Well, nobody's arguing about that, even though the water is precious, because they want to see what's going to happen. So finally, Elijah, I want to read you Elijah's prayer. Here's what Elijah prays. Verse 36. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. They've been doing it all day long. Prophets of Baal have been doing it all day long. Elijah times this, so now it's time, the time of day for the, to offer the sacrifice. So at the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, here's his prayer. This is it. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day... Number one, that thou art God in Israel. Number two, that I am your servant. Number three, that I've done all these things according to your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that these people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of God fell. Now, folks, these people that spend these long, long, long times in prayer, I'm wondering why. Now, don't get me wrong. I've spent a lot of time praying in other tongues because I need help, the help of the Holy Ghost to, to pray about things that I don't know how I ought to pray for. But you ought to always know how to start. Brother Hagin changed my life by saying one thing. He said, don't see how long you can pray. See how short you can pray. Well, that set me free because I'd heard all these things about how you're supposed to spend hour after hour and get in your closet and all this kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, oh. Really? But when I learn to pray short, what that means is I pray short according to what the Word says to pray for, and after that I'll spend all day long praying in tongues. That part's fun. That part's easy. I can do that while I'm doing everything else. And I'm not having to shut myself away somewhere for hour upon hour upon hour. I've already prayed the Word. If God didn't want His Word to come to pass, He wouldn't have told you you the truth in His Word. But the fact that he gave you the word tells you this is what he wants. So just pray in line with what he already says is his will. That's why you have to know what the word says. So Elijah's prayer is very simple. Lord, show that you're God, show that I'm your servant, and show that... What's the third thing? I missed the third thing. Show that you're God, show that I'm your servant, number three, and show that I've done these things at your word. Hear me so that everybody will know. Then the fire of God fell. Now notice what it does. This is not ordinary fire, folks. This is not a match. This is not a big lighter. Then the fire of God fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice. Well, okay, fire does that, doesn't it? It burns the sacrifice. It burns the, the bullock that they had on the altar. And the wood. Well, fire will do that too. And the, and the stones. That's like you building a fire in your fireplace that burns up your house. 
We're not talking natural fire. They consumed the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Folks, we're talking about something that vaporized everything in sight within a small area. And notice that it was controlled. It didn't kill all the people. It just fell on this one little area, however big the altar was, maybe it was as big as this pulpit. It fell in this one little area, burned everything else up in that area, and that was it. Now it's over. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. Meaning He's the Most High God. Meaning He's the real deal. So what was this miracle? Now, now, is this working of miracles or is this the gift of faith? I don't know. I could make a case for both. Because Elijah did something in order for this to come to pass. But right on the other hand, he's just operating according to the word of the Lord in this situation. So I think you can make a case both ways. And that's one of the problems we have with working of miracles and special faith. It's hard to tell the difference in some cases. Because they both result in a miraculous result. They both result in miracles. So is this working of miracles or is it a gift of faith? I don't know, but it's a miracle that results. For what purpose? So that God proves that he's God. Now, folks, there's something real interesting about the Old Testament as opposed to the New. And that is you don't find the working of miracles in operation very much in the New Testament. Now, it's some. You see it some in Jesus' ministry that was working of miracles when Jesus turned the water into wine. Now, what was miraculous about that? Well, water will naturally turn into wine if you put crushed grapes in it. Give it enough time and it'll turn into wine. But Jesus accelerated the process and it became an instant result. So that's a divine intervention into the ordinary course of nature, which is the textbook definition of a miracle. So he performed a miracle to turn the water into wine. He performed a miracle to uh, multiply the loaves and the fishes twice. For what purpose? So that everybody knew that it was God that provided for them. And it also proved who Jesus was. It showed that God was with Jesus. One of the things that, that Peter said on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, it's about, uh, I think it's about verse 22, somewhere around there. He said this about Jesus. He said, Jesus was a man approved of God by signs and wonders and miracles, which you all saw and which you all see and know. So he identified that Jesus was approved of God. By signs and wonders and miracles. In other words, the miracles showed that God is God and it showed who the servant of God was. In Jesus' case, the Son of God. That's what miracles are for. Whether they come by the gift of faith or by the working of miracles, they are there for two purposes, two main purposes. One, to show who's God, who is God or who God is. And the second is to show who the servant of God is. God doesn't have a problem exalting someone that's operating on his behalf with the right motive and the right attitude. We've got this idea that that if we exalt ourselves, then God humbles us. God's whole job is to humble us. Actually, the Bible says humble yourselves and God's, God will exalt you. God's not in the humbling business. You're supposed to be in the humbling business. God's in the exalting business. How does he do that? Well, one way is through miracles. One way is through miracles. Now, here we see Elijah. Turn with me over to uh, 2 Kings. I left you in 1 Kings, didn't I? Turn with me over to 2 Kings chapter 1. Elijah's still the prophet in Israel. He's already got Elisha working by his side now at this point in time. But notice something that happens. 
Um, we don't want to read the whole thing. Let's see, where do I want to start? Um, well, I'm going to have to summarize this. I'm just going to kind of pick it up in the middle. There's uh, Elijah is, uh, is, uh, proclaims the death of a certain king, the king of uh, the Samaritans, I believe it is. And, uh, and as a result, the word comes back to the king and says, well, who said this? And they describe the guy and he says, oh, it's Elijah. Okay, I'm going to send for Elijah. So here's where he sends for Elijah. Then the king, verse 9, then the king sent unto him a captain of 50 with his 50. And he went up to him, to Elijah. And behold, Elijah sat on the top of a hill. And he spake unto him, says, thou man of God, the king has said, come down. Now, who's greater, folks, the king or the prophet? Well, it depends on who you ask. The king thinks he is. And that's the same case today, folks. You need to realize God hadn't changed just because we've gone forward in time. Man's government is not greater than God. The president is not greater than somebody that's working on behalf of God. The king or the dictator of any country is not greater than somebody that's operating on behalf of God. Nothing has changed. Man's thinking has changed. We've gotten to where we don't rely on God and don't expect miracles. But somebody who's working on behalf of God has always been greater than man's government. And bless our hearts, the church sits back and says, Oh, I hope they don't take away my tax-exempt status. What a ridiculous notion. Have we forgotten who we serve? Have we forgotten who sent us? Now, now, don't get me wrong. I'm completely convinced that a lot of people that say they're, they're ministers and a lot of people that are, that are having church never were sent by God to begin with. But there are still those who were and are. And should we be afraid of the government? Should we be afraid because the government says you can't say this, so we shouldn't say it? Really? I'm going to say whatever I'm supposed to say and let the government take it up with my boss. <laughs> yeah, but what if they take away your tax-exempt status? I folks, I don't care. God didn't put me in this for a tax-exempt status. God didn't say go to California and establish an organization with a tax-exempt status. That never was part of the plan. I really don't care. Tax exempt or not, tax deductions or not, it's not going to change my giving. How about yours? I don't give because of the deductions. I give because the Bible tells me to. And just because the, the country changes, and they will. Just because the country changes what you can do and what you can take off your taxes with deductions and all this kind of stuff. Folks, they've got to find some way to pay for what they're doing. You think they're going to let you keep having your tax exempt status and your tax deductions for giving to charities? Really? You expect that? Seriously? It's just a matter of time. And then we're going to find out who's giving and why. Hello? Now, folks, I don't consider that a bad thing. Because you get people that are giving for the right reasons then and watch the miracles that take place. So the king's 
captain with his 50 says, Thou man of God, the king has said, Come down. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, If I be a man of God, you said so. If I really am, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And there came down fire from heaven and consumed him and his 50. I guess that's Elijah's way of saying, I'm not quite ready to go yet. And also again, the king sent unto him another captain of 50 with his 50. And he answered and said unto him, O man of God, thus said the king, thus hath the king said, come down quickly. You're making the king wait. Get down here. And Elijah answered and said unto him, If I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Now, folks, think about what's going on. We read this stuff and it's real easy for us to just make it a quick story and not really think about what's happening. First guy goes out and gets toasted with his fifty. What happens when the word comes back? The second captain of 50 probably says, well, I don't know what that guy thought he was doing, but I'll show him how, how to really get this done. And fire falls from heaven and consumes him and his 50. Where'd the fire come from? Does God have fire in heaven? Where did the fire come from? I don't have an answer. It's a real question. Where does the fire come from? It just said it came from heaven. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean God's got a little fire burning by the, by the throne and every now and then just goes. What does that mean? I don't know. Third guy. King sent again a captain of the third 50 with his 50 and the third captain of the 50 went up and came and fell on his knees. Now here's the smartest guy in the group. He fell on his knees before Elijah and besought him and says, Oh, man of God, I pray thee, please let my life and the life of those 50 thy servants be precious in thy sight. Now, this captain figured out who was who. I've got the king that's telling me to do something. and If I don't do it, he's going to cut off my head. If I do what he's telling me to do the way he's telling me to do it, I'm going to get burned up just like these other guys did. So I see who the real power is here. He continues and says, Behold, there came fire down from heaven and burn up the captains of the former fifties with their fifties. Therefore, now let my life be precious in your sight. And the angel of the Lord said unto Elijah, Go down with him. Don't be afraid of him. And he arose and went down with him to the king. Now here in two cases, you see Elijah that's operating with fire from heaven. <clears throat> You don't have that with any of the other prophets of Israel. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean it didn't happen, but you don't have the same thing occurring multiple times like you did with Elijah. You remember in the, um, remember in Acts chapter two, where it says there appeared unto them cloven tongues of fire and sat upon each of them in the upper room. One of the problems that I've always had, and I, and I really didn't, uh, this is part of being in, in Israel, in Jerusalem that I really didn't enjoy because they relegate the upper room to some off site, uh, tourist place. And it's a beautiful room. I mean, it's a nice place and, and people have revered it so much that there is a, a real peace in the room, but it wasn't the upper room. 
the upper room was was connected to, in some way, it was connected to the temple. It was probably one of the corners of the general or outer courts of the temple. Because when it happened, everybody saw what took place. It says they spilled out into the streets and they began to speak in other tongues and people started hearing them speak in other languages, their own languages, because they'd had to, that was the, uh, it was one of the feasts of Israel where everybody was commanded to come into Israel or to Jerusalem for this feast. And so everybody heard what was going on. But don't, don't mistake what was taking place. They saw the fire on their heads. Now, folks, in the Old Testament, when the priest would offer the sacrifice, especially on the Day of Atonement, some other times as well, throughout Jewish history it, it tells of this, but especially on the Day of Atonement, the way that they knew that their sacrifice was accepted was that fire would fall from heaven and consume the sacrifice. So it was a common thing for Israel, uncommon for the rest of the world. But Israel understood that this was God's sign of approval upon the sacrifice. He accepted the sacrifice. Their sins are covered over for a year. So when they see the tongues of fire, cloven tongues of fire, sitting on the apostles, the 120, in the upper room, this was not something that just happened and then they went out into the streets. It was something that they saw the fire of God on the people. Now they recognize, or at least they were. In, it was uh, intended for them to recognize that the fire doesn't fall on the sacrifice of the burnt offering anymore. The fire falls on people who accept Jesus as the Lord and Savior. So don't don't read this cloven tongues of fire as just, oh, wow, wasn't that cute? You know, just part of the story. We don't know what it means, but God did it for some reason or another. The reason he did it was to show Israel, here's where the fire falls now. Now, what is the fire? The outpouring of the Holy Ghost. Now, let me show you another operation of fire. Look with me over to, uh, to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. Here's a story that you're familiar with. Or will be, at least as soon as you're reminded of it. Here's the story of Nebuchadnezzar. He sets up this image of himself. And three times a day when the, the music would play, everybody was supposed to fall down and worship the image. Well, you remember that uh, when uh, Babylon uh, invaded and, and overtook Israel because of Israel's sin, it was judgment upon Israel because of their sin, turning away from God. Daniel and three other of the Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were taken captive and God used them, began to use them in great ways in uh, in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's court. The story is told about Daniel and interpreting the dreams. And now the three Hebrew children, they're also considered to be wiser than all of the other young men that are being taught and schooled by uh, uh, by the tutors and, and the educators and stuff like that. They're being groomed to be leaders for Nebuchadnezzar. But they won't bow down to the image just like they wouldn't uh, defile themselves with the king's meat. Earlier in the, in the, the story, they, they're not going to bow down to anybody except God. And so the king finds out about this. People that are trying to destroy these guys, get them out of the way, people that are jealous, tell him about this. And, uh, and Nebuchadnezzar calls him before them, gets them to come before him. And so he says this, um, the story comes to him in verse 12. There are certain Jews. This is the story coming to King Nebuchadnezzar. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee, nor served thy gods, nor worshipped the golden image that thou hast set up. Now notice Nebuchadnezzar's response. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, 
commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. So the king's already upset from what he's heard, right? This is not some, well, let's talk this out. He's mad at them. He's heard it. He believes the story. And so he's angry, and he brings them before him. And he says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true? Do you not serve my gods nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Here's your last chance. Now, if it be, if you be ready at that time that you hear the music playing, you fall down and worship the image which I have made, then everything will be okay. No matter what you've done before or haven't done before, if you do it now, everything will be okay. But if you worship not, you shall be cast to the same hour into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? And here again, you see man's government, the king of Babylon, thinking that he's in charge. Who's bigger than me is what he's asking. You got a choice. Music's going to play. If you fall down and worship, we'll, we'll count everything you did before as just water under the bridge. But if you don't, I'm going to throw you in the burning fiery furnace. And who is the God that will deliver you then? Pretty clear, pretty cut and dried, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said unto the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. They didn't say, can we have to tomorrow to talk about this? They've already planned this out. They know why they're being called. They know as soon as the image is set up and the decree goes out that everybody's supposed to worship and they won't, they know sooner or later this is going to come down to this for us. They're already planned. They're prepared ahead of time. And, folks, there is nothing like being prepared ahead of time for trouble when it comes. So he said, we're not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Now, I grew up hearing this in Sunday school. And they told me in Sunday school that this is what these guys said. If God does deliver us, then we'll worship him. But if he doesn't deliver us, we're still not going to worship you. Folks, that doesn't even make sense. If God doesn't deliver them, they're going to be dead. Right? Is the king really worried about who they worship after they die? Is that really an issue? No. The only, the only question is whether or not they're thrown into the burning fiery furnace. That's the only question. That was what Nebuchadnezzar set up to begin with. If you hear the music and fall down and worship, everything will be fine. Water under the bridge. But if you don't, I'll throw you into the burning fiery furnace. And then who's the God that will deliver you? That's what King Nebuchadnezzar said. So their response is, if it be so, if you throw us in, God will deliver us. You asked, God will. Here's the answer. God will be the one to deliver us. But if you don't, if you don't what? If you don't throw us into the burning fiery furnace, we're still not worshiping your image. Now, if you were King Nebuchadnezzar, knowing that he's already upset because of what he's heard before, if you're challenged like this, what's going to be your response? Or before we address that, maybe we should turn it around. If they're really saying what I was told in Sunday school, if you throw us in, God will deliver us, but God might not deliver us, so then we won't worship your image anyway. Nebuchadnezzar would laugh at that. He would say, well, okay, then let's see. He's not going to be upset about that. He's just going to say, well, that's kind of dumb. You're saying your God will deliver you, but he might not. Well, let's just test this out and see. One way to know for sure, throw them in. 
But notice what Nebuchadnezzar's response was. Nebuchadnezzar is responsive to a challenge that they have issued him. He tries to put it on them. Are you going to worship or not? Because the burning fiery furnace waits for you if you don't. They turn it back on him. They say, look, whether you throw us in or not, we're not worshiping your image. If you do throw us in, God will save us. If you don't, we're not worshiping your image. They're challenging his authority. And you can tell that by his response. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury. If they're questioning whether or not, or if they're saying God might or might not save us, Nebuchadnezzar is not going to be mad at that. But if they're challenging his authority, if they're challenging what result will occur based on what he does, now there's something to get upset about. And he does. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace one tenth seven times more than it was wont to be heated. And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, wait a minute, their hosen, and their hats, their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent, and the furnace exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Folks, I, I was amused. Well, no. I was a little bit amused and very much frustrated when the Bible series put this in their thing. And they made the burning fiery furnace thing like a campfire for the king. What Bible are they reading? This was something that was in the palace. This was something that was the heating system, the central heating system for all of Nebuchadnezzar's palace. And remember, Babylon had some of the seven wonders of the world, the hanging gardens of Babylon. Listen, these guys were architectural masters. And so the palace in Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar's palace, was something that was vast. It was made out of stone. There still remains of it today. There are, these were things that, that it would have taken some kind of furnace and some kind of apparatus to, to get the, the heat from one place to another, to the extremities of this, of this, uh, uh, of this palace, this, this, this great, magnificent thing that the world knew about. Nebuchadnezzar is thought to be the king of the world. So when this thing is heated up seven times hotter than it ever was, and they open the door, and just opening the door causes these most mighty men, these mightiest soldiers that he's got to be killed before the other guys are thrown in. We're talking about some kind of heat. And apparently it was set up in such a way so you could look down into it from a high enough vantage point. And that probably had something to do with the way the heat was dispersed. So it says, verse 23, that these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down burning, fell down bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then was Nebuchadnezzar the king astonished. That's what the word astonished means in the King James. It means he was astonished. He was mad just a few minutes ago. He's gone from being mad to being astonished. He was astonished and rose up in haste and spake, saying unto his counselors, didn't we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said, yeah, sure, true king, we, that's what we did, all right, just like you said, we, we did our part. And he answered and said, lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Long story short, he brings them out. He calls, he goes to the door and says, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, could y'all come out here for a minute, please? I'd really like to talk. 
And they brought him forth from the midst of the fire. Verse 27, And the princes, governors, and captains, and the king's counselors being gathered together saw these men upon whose body the fire had no power. Now we see Elijah calling down fire from heaven. Now we see these guys protected from the violence of the fire. They didn't extinguish the fire. The fire was there, but it had no power over them. Nor was a hair of their head singed, neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed upon them. Then Nebuchadnezzar spoke and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree that every people, nation, and language which speak anything amidst the, against anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made a dunghill, because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. So what was the purpose of the miracle? God proved that he was God. And the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. What does that mean? That means they recognize these guys are servants of that God. Now, I see the gift of faith in operation here because I see this happening as a result of what they declared because of what they believed in their heart. But this has to be special faith, folks. You don't have a scripture that says that fire won't hurt you. Now, there, there's, there is a psalm that talks about when you walk through the, the, the fire, you shall not be burned. And so it's speaking in a general sense about God's protection. But there is no specific promise that you've got that you can be thrown into a burning, fiery furnace or something to that, 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 of that nature, and it will always work for you. In fact, the Bible tells us a lot about the, the, uh, the persecution of the Christians during the Roman Empire. A lot of these people were burned at the stake. Why didn't they just walk off? Why didn't the fire just burn their ropes and, and their bonds away and they climb down from the stake and, and walk away? We don't see this happening in every situation. This has got to be a special manifestation of the Holy Ghost. This has got to be special faith in operation. Now, I'm also reminded of Hebrews where it talks about martyrs, people who would not accept their deliverance. They were tortured and they were killed in different ways. Martyrs who would not accept their deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Apparently, in this case, the Holy Ghost manifested so that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, it's not our time to go. It says other martyrs didn't accept their deliverance. It doesn't say God didn't, wasn't willing to deliver them. It says they didn't accept their deliverance. These guys did. So you see fire in operation. You see a miracle result, but you see it operating in different ways. The Bible talks about diversities of operations. Diversities of operations. The Holy Ghost will work in different ways. Now... What's the purpose of miracles? Miracles are to prove that God is God. Turn with me over to Matthew. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I can't leave this. I've got to, uh, I've got to do something here before we leave this. I've got to read a couple of verses from the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the Greek translation from the Hebrew, uh, in Jesus' day. It was the Bible of Jesus' day. Let me read you some verses that are left out of the King James translation that the Septuagint translates. Um, verse 23. Then these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace and walked in the midst of the flame, singing praise to God and blessing the Lord. Now, that's what the Greek Bible says. That's what the Septuagint says. Verse 24, And Nebuchadnezzar heard them singing praises 
And he wondered and rose up in haste and said to his nobles, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they said to him, Yes, O king. And the king said, But I see four men loose and walking in the midst of the fire, and there has no harm happened to them, and the appearance of the fourth is like the Son of God. So here's something that the Septuagint brings out, the Bible of Jesus' day brings out that the King James does not, and that is these guys are not just hoping something happens, they're singing praises in the middle of the fire. That's another indication to me that this is the gift of faith in operation because faith always thanks God for the answer. Amen? Okay, now turn with me over to Matthew chapter 9. Kind of tells you what you ought to do in the middle of your fire, doesn't it? Matthew chapter 9, story of Jesus in his earthly ministry. Verse 1, and he entered into a ship and passed over and came to his own city. That means the city which he dwelt in. This is the city of Capernaum, by the way. And behold, they brought unto him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins are forgiven, be forgiven thee. And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, wherefore said, Wherefore think ye evil in your, in your hearts? Now, how did he know their thoughts? This has got to be a manifestation of the word of knowledge. He knows what they're thinking. How? You can't know what somebody else is thinking except by revelation of the Holy Ghost. So here's a manifestation of the Holy Ghost that causes him to know what's going on on the inside of them. They didn't say it. They thought it. So he, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your, th- in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins be forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk? Notice verse 6. But that you may know. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now here you have Jesus doing the same thing that Moses did with Pharaoh. You've got Jesus doing the same thing that Elijah did with the contest on on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. You've got Jesus proving something. It's one of the only times he ever, well, it is the only time that Jesus ever says anything to this effect. Jesus is proving by the working of a miracle the power that God has given him to forgive sins. Now, I said something earlier that I may not have finished my thought. If I, if I did, if I'm repeating myself, then that's okay. It's good to hear it more than once. It's easy to find a lot of working of miracles in the Old Testament. Not so much in the New Testament. Why is that? It's got to be a reason. God hadn't changed. God's just as powerful today as he ever was in the Old Testament. Why is that? Because under the Old Covenant, under the Old Testament, God is proving who he is. Under the New Testament, he emphasizes his mercy, his compassion. That's why you see more healing in the New Testament than you see in the Old. That's why you see more power manifested in working of miracles in the Old Testament than you do in the New Testament. The miracles that take place under the New Covenant or in the New Testament are, by and large, healing miracles. You remember over and over again, people came to Jesus and said, Jesus, have mercy on me. They're recognizing his mercy, not just his power. One guy and only one guy comes to Jesus and says, I know you can, I just don't know if you will. Why? He knows of the power, 
but he's not sure of the compassion. He's not sure of the willingness or the mercy of God to do it. And Jesus immediately stretched forth his hand and said, I will be thou clean. That's the leper in Matthew chapter 8. Why? What's this mean? It means that under the new covenant, in our day, Jesus is emphasizing the mercy of God more than the power of God. Which means we're going to see more healing miracles than we are other things. Unless we go to the mission field where nobody's ever heard of Jesus. Now you go to the mission field, you can get a lot of working of miracles, a lot of gift of faith and operation and things that are apart from healings to a much greater degree than you'll have at home. Now, why is that? Because you shouldn't need anybody to prove to you that God's powerful. America really shouldn't need anybody to prove to them that God is powerful. We've done a better job of sending the the, the written word, the Bible, in, in translations, uh, many, many translations all over the world, more so than any other country in the face of the earth. We're the ones that are supposed to know. We've got the truth. At least we've had access to it. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying America believes. But at least we've heard by and large. So for that reason, you're going to have a, 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 a less obvious proof that God is all-powerful, then you will have a, a many-fold manifestation that God is merciful. And you see that reflected in the New Testament. Now, let me close with this. Turn with me over to, uh, to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. What's all this mean? Well, here's what it means as far as I'm concerned. Remember where we started in Zechariah chapter 10, verse 1. Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. So the Lord shall make bright clouds or lightnings and shall give them showers of rain to every one grass in the field. Let me translate that for you again as I did earlier. Ask for a move of the Holy Ghost in the last days. And God will make his power and his presence manifest to bring people into the kingdom of God. Which is what the precious fruit of the earth is all about. It's bringing people into the kingdom of God. Notice in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Jesus said, but you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and under the, uh, unto the uttermost part of the earth. Let me cut off that last part because I think that a lot of times that robs the, the real meaning of the verse. You'll be witnesses unto me wherever you go, near and far. That's what it means, right? Okay, so let's just summarize it that way so that we don't get caught up in all the other stuff. Notice what it says, but you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me wherever you go. Can I ask you a question? Why don't we have the manifestations of the Spirit in the way that we see in the book of Acts then? As soon as these guys get filled with the Holy Ghost, they start having manifestations of the Holy Ghost. They start having the lightnings of God, whether it's miracles, signs, wonders, utterance, revelation, whatever. They start having it. Why does the modern-day church not have it in the same way? Now, I've got to be careful how I say this because a lot of these things happen in private settings rather than public settings, and so people think nothing's going on. And I don't want to leave that impression. But can we agree, at least from a general sense, that, well, let me just say it for me. I won't say it for you. I'm not satisfied with what we see. I 
That doesn't mean we're not seeing anything. We've seen, we, if we ask for a show of hands, people that have been healed and, and things like that, nearly everybody in the room would be able to testify to some degree. And I'm not saying that we're supposed to have manifestations of the Holy Ghost for the church to, to, um, to thrill ourselves with. That's not what they're for. Manifestations of the Holy Ghost are not meant to take the place of faith. We have the Word of God we should be receiving by faith. Manifestations of the Holy Ghost are for the church to reach the, reach the lost with, not to reach us with, not to have a good time in church so that we can say, wow, wasn't that thrilling? That's not what manifestations of the Spirit are about. People don't grow from inspiration. People don't grow from miracles. The Bible says, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. There's only one thing that will cause you to grow, and that's the word. Not miracles, not manifestations of the Holy Ghost. They don't make you grow. They're not intended to make you grow spiritually. They're intended for you to use to reach people that don't know God. Same thing with preaching or inspiration or encouragement. That's great. Everybody likes to be encouraged, but it doesn't make you grow. It's the word that makes you grow. Teaching is the thing that God said in the church to make us spiritually mature. Preaching is good. It'll fire us up. It'll get us inspired, but it won't make you grow. Seeing signs and wonders and miracles, seeing the plagues in Egypt didn't cause Israel to grow. In fact, they rejected the word because they got used to the show. So I'm not saying that we don't see things. I'm not saying that, that things are, are, uh, uh, I'm not saying that there's a spiritual dearth or, or drought in any way whatsoever. But I'm not satisfied with the manifestation of the Holy Ghost. I'm not talking about through me. I'm talking about through the church. I'm not satisfied with how the Holy Ghost is manifesting through you. And that means one and only one thing, and that is it means we're not believing for it. We may know it. We may know what the Bible says. We may agree that, that, yeah, this is something God does in the earth. God hadn't changed, and this stuff still works. But that won't make it work in us. We've got to believe for it. How do you do that? How do you believe for it? Folks, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to turn our church into a Holy Ghost church so that we lose the word. The word's always going to be first for us. But God confirms his word with signs following. So if you put the word first, the signs are going to follow. Well, what signs? In this case, the manifestations of the Holy Ghost. Now, if you never reach out to the lost, there's nothing for the Holy Ghost to manifest himself for. Right? Did I lose you on that one? That's right, isn't it? So we've got a part to play in that we have to be conscious and caring about the condition of the world. Right? So that's part of it. We've got to be doers of the word in the, in, in cooperating with what God wants done. But that still brings us back to Acts chapter one and verse eight. I read something in uh, Bible school in 1980, maybe 81, 80 or 81. I'm not sure. I read something. It was one of the, uh, uh, transcribed sermons of Smith Wigglesworth. And I just came across that again. It's been, uh, well, what, uh, 40, 30 years, 30, 32 years, I guess. 32 years later, here I am. I came across it about six months ago. Read the same thing that I read before. Had it underlined, highlighted from the first time that I read it. And this time, I saw it. Wigglesworth said this. He said, if you're filled with the Holy Ghost, you'll have manifestations. 
The first time I read that, it brought me under condemnation because I knew I was spirit-filled, but I wasn't having them. So I just thought, oh, wow, must be something wrong with me. I came across it several months back, and I read it again. And I realized, here's what's happened. What's happened is we've taken that phrase, Acts chapter 1-8, and we've seen that we don't have the results that it says, and so we backed up and we've said, well, you know, it's as the Lord wills, we'll, we'll put it all over on Him. It's the same thing as seeing that the Bible says, by Jesus' stripes you were healed, and say, yeah, but I'm sick, so I guess it's just in the Lord's hands. No, you've got to actively take hold of it. So let me read Acts chapter 1, verse 8 again. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you'll be witnesses unto me wherever you go. But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you'll be witnesses unto me wherever you go. How many of you are filled with the Holy Ghost? Guess who this is talking to? This says, because you are filled with the Holy Ghost... You have power to be witnesses wherever you go. Now, what is that power? The manifestation of the Holy Ghost as identified in in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But the manifestation of the Spirit, that's the power he's talking about. But you shall receive power. You shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. What does that mean? Well, for me, it's turned things around and I've started saying, wait a minute, I am filled with the Holy Ghost, so I have power. And man, the Holy Ghost is doing stuff with me. A lot of it is private stuff. I mean, let's face it. If you're saved, there's no reason for you to have a manifestation of the Holy Ghost to get saved again, is there? And most of who I minister to is saved people. But man, the Holy Ghost has started doing some things with me. He started doing some things with me in leading. Can I tell you something real quick? We went to a minister's meeting first part of this week, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. It's so good to be back with normal people. But we went to this minister's meeting, and you know I've got an electric car. Well, I called the hotel that this meeting was being held at and asked them about a, a charging station for the car because you've got to recharge your car. So they said, yeah, yeah, we got you figured, we got you covered. I got up there, and they gave me a 110-volt outlet. Folks, it would take me a week to recharge my car on that. Now, if you got some little Toyota Prius that can only go 40 miles on a charge or something, maybe that works. I don't know, but i got a car. And so I'm stuck. I pulled up the app on my phone that showed me the nearest charging stations, and the nearest one is the transit uh, station, the train station, five miles away. So I'm going to have to drive my car down there, walk back five miles, leave it in a terrible part of town while it recharges for several hours, and then go back, walk five miles later on in the evening after the meeting's over, go back and get my car, and then drive back. I don't want to do that. So I'm coming down. I've got no choice. I'm coming down, come down the elevator into the basement, the the parking garage, and I turn left to go to where my car is parked in this 110-volt outlet, charging at two miles per hour. And literally, it would take me a week. I've got got a 300-mile charge on my car. It'd take me a week. So I'm walking over there, and I'm thinking, Lord, I don't want to do this. I've got got 10 miles of walking ahead of me, and I I don't want to do this. Now, I walk 10 miles all the time when I want to but not when I don't want to. And so I said, Lord, I don't want to do this. I'm just kind of talking to myself, but I've got no other option. I mean, this is it. 
only one in town or the closest one in town. So I come out of the elevator and go to the left and I hear guys talking down in the parking garage down there and just a still small voice on the inside said, go talk to these guys. I'm thinking I got five miles to walk. I don't need to take the time to talk to guys. But just right there, still small voice, go talk to these guys. I wound up, long story short, chief engineer is one of the guys talking. They put in a 240-volt charging station for me. That, the next day. I had to walk 50 feet. (laughs) They put it in. As a matter of fact, I gave them the adapter. They went and bought the thing to fit my adapter. All because of something on the inside. Go talk to those guys. Now, folks, I've been led of the Holy Ghost ever since I knew about being led of the Holy Ghost. That's one of the things that Brother Hagin taught me. But what I'm saying is the more that I focus on, wait a minute, I've got the Holy Ghost. The greater one lives on the inside of me. I've got power. I don't know if you know this or not, but things are supposed to work out to your advantage. Doesn't mean you're not going to have trouble. Doesn't mean you won't have trials. But in the middle of those, in, in between those trials, stuff's supposed to go your way. Now the devil's going to try to raise up his head every now and then, try to slap you down. And when he does, be ready just like the three Hebrew children. Say, okay, fine, let's have this battle, get it done so we can go back to things being good for me. But that's the way it's supposed to be. You are supposed to, and whether or not you know it, you do have an unfair advantage over the world. His name is the Holy Spirit. That's why he's there. He's there to guide you into all truth, to bring all things to your remembrance that Jesus said. And to show you things to come. That's what he's supposed to do. He'll do that in you privately, personally. And he'll do it through us in these nine manifestations of the Spirit to reach the lost. And it doesn't have to be a showy thing. Just like I knew, I need to go talk to those guys. Even though my head was trying to talk me out of it, you got a long walk ahead of you, don't do it, don't take the time. I knew I need to go talk to these guys. So I took the time and talked to these guys. And boy, did did it ever work out. There will be things that you'll know you need to say to people. You'll know what their situation is. You'll know things that they're they're dealing with. You'll know what area they're hurting so that you can just tell them. You know, Jesus will, will take care of that. That's what Jesus did to the woman at the well of Samaria. He said, go call your husband. Why did he say go call your husband? Because she knew marital issues was her big life crisis. She said, I don't have a husband. She said, you're right about that. You've had four and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. That got her attention. She knows he knows her situation. So whatever he says next has got her attention. Jesus didn't stop and wait for the lightning to flash and say, God just showed me that you're living in sin. And you've been divorced and remarried four times. Really? Now, that's just somebody trying to draw attention to themselves. And unfortunately, that's how some people have used the manifestation of the Spirit. It's supposed to help people. It doesn't have to be a big show, but it is real. And the people that you talk to will know that it's real. Paul identified it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He said, when you reveal the secrets of people's hearts, they'll fall down and worship God and say, God is in you for sure. And what better thing is there to be said of the church? If I want our church known, be known for anything, I want it to be known for God's there. I don't care if they say he's a good teacher, he's a good pastor, he's this, that, or that. I couldn't care less about that. What I want them to say is God's in that place. 
because that'll bring people whether they like me or not, which in my personal case is a real advantage. (laughs) I'm not the easiest guy to like, but I know my limitations. But if somebody knows God's here, who cares about the guy that's with him? Amen. That needs to be our focus. But you shall receive power if the Holy Ghost has come upon you. If the Holy Ghost has filled you already, you've got power. We need to quit praying, Lord, give us power. We've got power. What we need to do is start exercising faith in that power. Thank you, Father, for the power of God that lives in us. Thank you that the greater one dwells in us. We have an unction from the Holy One, and we know all things. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. That's where we need to start putting our faith. Paul talked about going to Corinth, and he said, My speech and my preaching was not in enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. How did he get that? He put faith in it. He exercised faith for the power of God that was already given to him because he's filled with the Holy Ghost. You and I need to do the same thing. That's what Paul means where he says to the church, desire spiritual gifts, covet to prophesy, and so forth. He's saying, put your faith on these things that have already been given to the church. Now, how they work, I'm not putting faith on, Lord, give me the word of wisdom. Couldn't care less about that. That's how the Holy Ghost, that's according to the will of the Holy Ghost. I just care about having the power that is needed and necessary to reach people that I come in contact with, you included. Amen? We don't pick and choose. But we have the power. And as long as the power that we have is exercised to reach people and help and meet their needs, what do we care which one it is? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is true. Because it is true, Father, we have the power of the Holy Ghost residing within us. This is a spirit-filled church filled with spirit-filled people. Therefore, We have power because the Holy Ghost has come upon us. And we are witnesses wherever we go. We're not going to be. We are now because of the power of the Spirit of God. Thank you, Father, that the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge and discerning of spirits, special faith, working of miracles and gifts of healings, tongues, interpretation of tongues and prophecy flows through us freely as the Spirit of God wills to reach people that don't know you, to draw those back that have left their father's house. That's the move of the Holy Ghost in the last days. That's what will bring about the precious fruit of the earth. And, oh, Father, thank you for using us. According to your will, your plan, your purpose, use that power of the Spirit of God that's in us. In Jesus' precious name. If you can agree with that, say amen. 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 Praise the Lord. Start believing for these things, folks. Make it an active part of your faith. Begin to say what the Bible says. I have power because the Holy Ghost has come upon me, and I am a witness everywhere I go. Don't try to be one. Don't try to act like one. Don't try to talk like one. Just be who you are. The Bible says by the Holy Ghost, you are a witness wherever you go. Somebody said it this way. Witness to the world. If necessary, use words. I like that. Amen. Well, God bless you. Have a great day. And we'll see you tonight if you can come on back and be with us. Amen.